Good day. You are listening to the 98th edition of Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christophe in Montreal. It is Tuesday, the 29th of February, and on this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with Karen Weisbart of the Makila Solidarity Network. This is a organization that has been active for many decades. Um, you can find them at makilasolidarity.org. They have worked tirelessly to build connections of support between the labor movement in North America and workers' organizations around the world, particularly within the garment sector. Recently, they have been working with a group of workers in El Salvador who were employed in a factory run by Florenzi Industries. Um, this is a company within El Salvador that had produced a lot of clothing materials uh, for export to the United States and particularly were working on uh, producing um, materials, uh, scrubs in fact, shaped around the narrative of the program Grey's Anatomy. And uh, they have been working to basically challenge unjust labor conditions in the context of this outsourced contract surrounding Disney, which owns Grey's Anatomy. So they have been uh, protesting now since uh, the pandemic closed their factory for um, a huge, uh, relatively huge in the context of El Salvador base of unpaid wages, $1.3 million. This group of workers, mainly women workers in El Salvador, have been challenging uh, Florenzi Industries with support of groups internationally like the Maquila Solidarity Network. I spoke with Karen Weisbart from Maquila Solidarity Network about the persisting importance of supporting garment sector uh, workers, in this case in the context of El Salvador, but also more generally, there was a very important wave of support to think critically about the role of, you know, international garment corporations and production mechanisms internationally that outsourced so much textile production to global South contexts. And uh, it's very important, I think, to highlight when a group of workers strike together, act together, mobilize together, and are victorious. And in this case, this group of workers actually won their unpaid wages with support of international solidarity activists, but a struggle certainly led on the ground in El Salvador by the workers of Florenzi Industries. Um, so Karen was involved through a, a network of organizations, including the Bikila Solidarity Network, to drive uh, media attention towards this case. Uh, it was mediatized in the U.S. and to a degree in Canada. Um, but I wanted to highlight this story because I think, you know, at a certain point around the, the turn of 1999, 2000, 2001, there was a lot of focus on the conditions of garment sector workers. And again, in 2013, with the Rana Plaza um, factory collapse in Dhaka, Bangladesh, but this is a persisting issue and highlighting when workers stand together and mobilize together to demand justice is important. So here's my conversation um, with uh, Karen Weisbart from the Makila Solidarity Network on their efforts to support the workers of Florenzi Industries in El Salvador. My name is Karen Weisbart. I'm a program officer with 
the McKillop Solidarity Network, involved in global campaigning work uh, through many of our networks in Asia. Uh, and so we collaborate on a lot of different initiatives, you know, related to more systemic issues related to the garment industry and also on specific case related work as, as labor rights violations come up as they tend to in this industry. So the Florenzi case in, in El Salvador, um, I mean, this is a case that is actually very exciting because it started with a group of workers who basically made their case known internationally and ultimately ended up winning their case. Um, and it's, it's amazing to see victories like this and also just collaboration among so many different folks. So, you know, basically when the pandemic hit, a lot of factories in El Salvador uh, were hard hit and a lot of workers ended up being suspended. Factories weren't able to, you know, major brands and retailers started canceling their products and their shipments. And so in this case, uh, Industrias Florenzi, which is the name of the company, they started slowly cutting back on, on wages, paying workers less than what they were supposed to, holding back on legally owed uh, health care payments. So deducting those payments from workers' paychecks, but then not actually paying into this, the government social security systems that they were required to do by law. Um, and slowly but surely other benefits like be like pregnancy benefits were being cut from workers. And then eventually in, in July of 2020, the factory closed. Um, and about 207 workers who then lost their jobs uh, were never paid their full wages. They did not receive severance. Um, and severance in El Salvador is, you know, it means that you can work for 20 years at a company at a factory, which was the case for many of these workers. And then they didn't, they didn't get anything. And this is, um, you know, for garment workers who are literally paid poverty wages, wages that aren't, that may be minimum wage, but that don't hit, um, don't make it possible for workers to pay for anything else or, or to survive during a crisis. Um, this was a really, you know, difficult thing. And so once that, once that happened, uh, these workers were kind of left with, with nothing. Um, and they decided to fight. So they organized, they got together, um, they occupied uh, the outside of the factory, you know, guarding the factory to make sure that if any goods were coming out, that they would you know, make sure that the money would ultimately go to them. And uh, they even organized a hunger strike, you know, just demanding what they were legally owed. And, and you know, at the end of the day, they were owed $1.3 million in wages, which for a major company is, is not a big deal. And um, so Grey's Anatomy, which is, you know, which was being produced by Barco Uniforms, um, is a Disney licensee. So Barco is actually connected. They sort of have the right to produce these clothes uh, for, for Disney. And so the Workers' Rights Consortium 
um, other organizations who got together and started to pressure these companies asking for or demanding that they, you know, make the, the workers whole. And um, yeah, it took a lot of effort, a lot of global campaigning and a lot of, a lot of energy. And eventually um, the workers were paid. Uh, the Barco agreed to pay $1 million. They called it a humanity uh, or a human, humanitarian contribution. Wow. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're certainly never going to say that they fulfilled their requirement, you know, which is, of course, a requirement under um, human rights and business, you know, the UN human rights and business uh, guiding principles and, and, you know, <laughs> just the responsibility of a billion dollar um, company to make sure that the workers who are making its clothes and who make their profits possible actually get paid what they're owed. Absolutely. Can you, can you just detail clearly the, the role that this company plays in regards to the distribution of, um, you know, materials for, you know, programs like Grey's Anatomy in the United States that also affects Canada and why it's important to sort of link those materials to this labor struggle? Yeah, well, I mean, basically, there's a lot of companies who, large brands and retailers who produce their clothes in, you know, around the world, and they source from factories. And in some cases, those companies own the factories, but in most of the cases, they don't, uh, which means that they rely on the factories to make the goods. They give them the specifications of how to make those goods. And, you know, factories kind of compete with one another to gain access to the contracts. And so in the case of Barco, um, they were, they had their products produced in El Salvador and they were able to produce those products um, because they had uh, the, the, licensee, they're a licensee of Disney. Um, and so then those products are, you know, in this case, you know, medical Grey's Anatomy and med medical scrubs, you know, they, they're going to supply chains in, in mostly the, the United States, um, in this case, not, not Canada. Um, and, and so it means that, that people are wearing products, but it also means that um, the profits that are coming from that those should also be going back to the the factory. There should be fair prices paid for those products at the level of, you know, the the factory um, that then ensure that wages are appropriate. Can you uh, share any thoughts about the ways that this contemporary struggle is linked to um, histories of labor organizing, both in El Salvador and Guatemala? This is not. The, you know, these organizers are not coming to this present. It's not happening in a historical vacuum. I mean, I think it's important to recognize that a lot of the folks who are leaders today in the labor rights world in El Salvador, um, especially, are folks who have been doing this work for a long time. It's been extremely difficult to organize in 
um, in El Salvador, also in Guatemala. Um, certainly, you know, during the 80s, there was a lot of oppression, labor rights in Guatemala in particular were very attacked. And so like folks who were part of the, the trade union movement, um, you know, were attacked and intimidated and disappeared. Um, and there's a lot of complications that have sort of evolved from that, that organizing and that sort of attack on organizing that has made it difficult and, and the situation or the context for workers to, to feel that they can organize um, safely was, was really complicated. And uh, yeah, the El Salvador and, and, and Guatemala are certainly different, um, but they have a lot of similar roots in that, in that regard. And the work that we're seeing now, you know, we're not, there's, there's lot. There's definitely unions that are have formed, and there in historic unions in both Guatemala and in El Salvador, and that's important, um, important work. And there's also still need for um, grassroots or not grassroots, but um, worker education and support for workers to know their rights, and also for factories that are operating in those countries to recognize those rights. And it's been a real challenge in both countries to create the social dialogue that's needed for that, um, the, the recognition and relationship building that's required, uh, trade unions and work, you know, with workers, and um, it's been important also to have opportunities for, for freedom of association and, and to recognize that that's not a bad word. A lot of factories are fearful of unions and feel that they're trying to undercut businesses. Um, and that's certainly a legacy that, that has, um, you know, deep roots in, in that history. So. Thanks so much um, for sharing all that. Uh, last question. Can you talk about the ways that um, understanding these contemporary struggle speaks to intersectionality? Because I think often people think about supporting, you know, uh, textile workers, um, you know, within the context of Central America, or I know that your organization has also specifically supported textile workers in Bangladesh. These are often thought about as sort of uh, efforts that took place around, you know, the turn of the century that were uh, campaigns that were just really rooted in consumer choice. But in fact, these more recent uh, campaigns show who's still at the focus point of these labor struggles, which are often women, which are also people of color in the global South. I'm just wondering if you could share any thoughts about why it's very important to continue to think about, you know, distribution chains of textile uh, materials, but in a contemporary analysis of in in intersectionality. Sure. I mean, I think as long as we we continue to operate within a capitalist system, there's going to be 
racism and the folks who are on the bottom are going to be are going to be racialized um, at the bottom of the supply chain, I mean, are going to be racialized. And, you know, there, there used to be the idea that a boycott would resolve would resolve things and that if, you know, there was a bad brand, one bad apple, um, that boycott would be the answer. But the reality is that within a capitalist system, there's people who are being exploited daily. There's women in racialized communities who are being exploited, whether they're in El Salvador, whether they're in Bangladesh, um, uh, whether they're in Eastern Europe. And so it's, it's important to recognize that while we struggle against the larger issues of capitalism, we still need to be recognizing the importance of supporting workers who are continuing to struggle for some of the most basic rights that you know have been enshrined in international labor rights conventions for years now and that countries have signed on to, um, but that still um, aren't the reality for, for many workers in that context, um, in the garment context. And so we're seeing billion dollar profits being made by um, companies that are owned by white, largely white male and sometimes female CEOs. And then we're recognizing that those profits are made possible by the women and men who are racialized working in conditions that are often unsafe, that lack basic wages, um, and that lack the social safety net so that when there is a crisis, such as a factory closure, or in this case, a pandemic, uh, they're, they're left with nothing, literally. And the disparity between that is just so clear. The, the people who are making the profit, the white folks at the top are making that profit because racialized folks and women at the bottom of the supply chain are being exploited. Thanks for sharing your thoughts today. Okay, great. Thanks so much for the opportunity. That was a conversation with Karen Weisbert of the Makila Solidarity Network, uh, an international solidarity uh, organization. You can find them at makilasolidarity.org. They have been supporting a group of workers in El Salvador who challenged basically an industry player in El Salvador called Florenzi Industries um, for unpaid wages. Uh, Their factory is closed in the context of the pandemic, but 1.3 million in wages for this relatively small uh, garment factory in El Salvador were unpaid. Um, And so this company was producing material for subsidiary of Disney and specifically scrubs uh, that were branded around the program Grey's Anatomy. This case actually is an example of garment sector workers winning. Uh, They won their unpaid wages and Makila Solidarity Network helped activate an effort globally around this case, which I think was very important. You can read all about it uh, at makilasolidarity.org. That's M-A-Q-U-I-L-A solidarity.org. 
Thank you so much to Karen Weisbert from Aquila Solidarity Network to speak about this important case on Free City Radio. This has been the 98th edition of the program. Uh, we share two new podcasts a week on Tuesdays and Fridays. Uh, we broadcast on CKUT 90.3 FM at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays uh, in Montreal, and also we'll be starting to broadcast in April at 1 p.m. on CJLO on Tuesdays. That's 1690 a.m. You can find, of course, our podcast uh, through uh, Free City Radio. Just search on SoundCloud or iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts. I'm your host in Montreal, Stefan Christophe. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, and thanks again to Makila Solidarity Network for participating uh, in the broadcast today. And to go out on the broadcast today, I'm going to feature uh, an awesome track by a group that I love, Mexican Institute of Sound. Uh, this is the track Mexico. And uh, we'll be uh, sharing another episode with you this week. Um, it is the 29th of February, 2022. I hope you're all doing well, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care.
Estado fallido campeón Orgullosos patios traseros Al sonoro rugir del cañón Y se siembre con tus manos la hierba Al sonoro rugir del cañón Y se siembre con tus manos la hierba Al sonoro rugir del cañón